This is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. All change again. It's jump jets for the Royal Navy's new aircraft carriers. It was they, Mr Speaker, who ordered the ships without having the money to pay for them. Describing this government's defence strategy as an omni-shambles would be a compliment. What's in a cap badge and why it's taken so long to finally honour the men of Bomber Command? The government's announced it's changed its mind about what kind of plane will be deployed on the new aircraft carrier it's building. In a major U-turn, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond told the Commons they were reverting to plans by the former Labour government to acquire the jump jet version of the US-built F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Two years ago, the coalition decided an orthodox jet using a so-called cats and traps takeoff and landing system was a better option. Chief of Defence Staff General David Richards says that decision was right at the time, but the escalating cost of the cats and traps option meant the government was right to change its mind. It's my job on behalf of uh, the government to advise on capability in the round, and by going for the aircraft we did plan, we would skew defence so heavily in one direction that I begin to worry about our overall capability. So it's a difficult decision, I think it's the right decision and the service chiefs are fully behind it. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst spoke to the Defence Secretary shortly after the Commons announcement. He began by asking what process had led to this change of heart. Well, as you know, the Strategic Defence Review took a decision that we would regenerate carrier capability by 2020 and it further decided that we should pursue the CV, the carrier variant route to do that by fitting cats and traps to one of our carriers and as you would expect on a 10 billion pound project uh, we've then embarked on a major piece of work, engineering work, design work to analyse the costs and risks around the project and as we've done that new facts have emerged. The cost uh, of fitting the cats and traps has more than doubled to two billion uh, pounds. The risks around the Stovall aircraft, which were seen to be very great in 2010, have significantly reduced with the work that Lockheed Martin and the Marine Corps uh, have done. And most importantly of all, the in-service date that we could expect with the cats and traps route has pushed out to late 2023 at the earliest, and that is beyond the window that we can accept for a lack of carrier capability. Your critics are saying it's not so much that facts have changed or new facts have emerged, but actually you just didn't have all the facts when, when your government took the decision. Well, look, the reality in big, complex engineering projects like this is that you get facts by carrying out design and development work, whether it's uh, developing a new aircraft or a new missile or building a ship. It's only when you start spending some money that you establish the facts and the detailed knowledge. It's very difficult for people to get their heads around that concept, but it isn't like buying a packet of cornflakes off the shelf. We are designing and building a unique uh, programme here, and the work that was commissioned has uh, revealed uh, greater complexity in the fitting of cats and traps to the carrier than was ever uh, expected. And at the same time, the US has reduced the risk around the Stovall aircraft. That's changed the balance, and when the balance of facts changes, we should review our decisions and, if necessary, change our minds. And that's what we have done, taking, uh, I have to say, some political pain today in announcing uh, this decision. 
But I am clear, and everybody I've heard commentating on this so far uh, has also been clear, that this is the right decision for Britain's armed forces. It will give us an affordable and sustainable equipment programme and the support that the armed forces need for Future Force 2020. There will be some in the armed forces gang. They've just changed their mind on a centrepiece decision. What other things are they going to change their minds on? Well, this, this is a very complex programme uh, and we needed to analyse the details around it and make sure that, we'd, uh, that, that the facts were still um, the same. Um, we don't have any other pro projects this complicated, although defence procurement is full of significant projects, as you know. Um, I hope that having now announced this change to the carrier project, I will be in a position very shortly to nail down the remainder of the defence equipment plan and announce the balanced budget for PR12, which we've been striving towards. This was the last piece of the jigsaw uh, today, and I think uh, it will usher in an era in which defence planning can be more certain, uh, more guaranteed than it has been for many, many years. One of the implications of today is potentially we could be operating two carriers rather than just one. Does that have implications for Manning? Well, what we've said today is that we will complete both carriers in the Stovall configuration, so there'll be two usable carriers. That wouldn't have been the case if we'd stuck with CV. Um, whether we decide to use the second carrier to provide cover for the first one during periods of extended maintenance or refit is a decision that will be made in the next SDSR in 2015, as we always said the decision on the second carrier would be made. And if we did decide uh, to use it to provide that cover, then there would be some additional crewing implications. That was the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond speaking to our reporter James Hurst. Well, I'm joined now in the studio as ever by BFBS's Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. What do you think about what you heard today? Well, I'm pro the F-35 Bravo um, because it's in line, it seems to me that it's in line with the asymmetrical warfare that we're all, all supposed to be planning for in the future. It gives restrictions. I mean, for example, the other version, you know, the conventional version, it's got a range of about 650 miles. This one's probably got about, what, 420, 430. Time over target may not be so great. You may not be able to carry the same amount of weaponry that you carry in the other one because you've got a different, different engine and power configuration. But... You're doing a different sort of warfare. It's interesting, though, when, when this decision has been made, the reasons for the decision given is all about money. It's not about capability or, or, or any kind of... It doesn't, no one's talked about the strategic thinking behind it in terms of what you're talking about now, which is how these jump jets would be used as opposed to the other planes that were going to be ordered. You're absolutely right. And that was the problem of the 2010 uh, defence review. It was done by the Treasury experts. It was done by the Secretary of the Treasury, who was saying, this is what you could do, this amount of money but Is our forward thinking then dictated by money, do you think, rather than by the actual what, what we want to be able to do? Well, I hope it isn't, uh, but it is. And we heard the uh, Chief of Defence Staff, uh, uh, General Richards, has been saying, oh, well, it's part of my job to sort of guess what the escalating costs, costs were. Well, in 2010, when they came to the decision, I spoke to, I don't know, half a dozen good defence economists. Every one of them said these costs are bogus. They'll go up by at least 50, 60 percent. Now, we hear the Defence Secretary say, well, they've gone up by sort of 100 percent. You're going to tell me that we're ruled by such incompetence that they can't work out the sums from, their, from, from, from what they've learned. We have at the Defence Ministry, unfortunately, the most uh, uh, useless in defence terms, acquisition and procurement systems. That's what they were working these costs on. But more importantly, more importantly, is that the uh, F-35 uh, Bravo makes an enormous amount of sense if we're thinking 
in future, in the next 15, 20 years, what sort of warfare are we likely to be fighting and with what will we have to fight it? Which will lead some people to say, why did we get rid of the Hawks? Uh, the Harriers. The Harriers. The Harriers. Well, the Harriers have come more or less to the end of their life anyway. You know, some didn't have radar, etc. This, uh, the F-35 is a really good airplane. Uh, it's got all the systems which, which the Harrier could never have. And don't forget, if you're talking in that thing about uh, Lockheed Martin and their aircraft and the problems which they might have got rid of, they haven't got rid of all their problems. The Americans themselves, who are buying the, um, uh, the, the Charlie version of this, they got dreadful problems with it, and they've cancelled part of their uh, part of their uh, 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 order for this. The defence secretary took the right decision on military grounds. Forget the economics. Christopher, stay with us. I'm joined now by the Shadow Defence Secretary, Jim Murphy. Jim Murphy, thanks for your time today. Um, there were lively exchanges in the Commons today. You accuse the Defence Secretary of omni-shambles, but doesn't he deserve some credit for taking what you view as the right decision? Omni-shambles would be a kind way to explain the government's defence policy at the moment. In fact, it would be a compliment, because what they've done is they've finally taken the right decision, but only after trying all of the other possible options. They've wasted time, they've wasted money, they've wasted prestige, they've taken away some of the talents, they've undermined our capability at sea, and all in the sake of trying to appear different after the election. They knew the risks, they knew the costs. I know the advice the Prime Minister was given. They chose to ignore it, to appear different, to try and clean break with the past. And this isn't a U-turn today. It's more of a full circle they've taken back to Labour's policy because it's the sensible one to undertake. And yet critics will say that the government has opted for the inferior aircraft, making short-term savings now but lacking a long-term view. These things are always a, a play-off between cost and capability. Um, and I'm confident that the, the variant that they've uh, adopted now is a remarkable improvement on just what the UK can project at the moment. And it's light years away from the Harrier jump jets. And I think, bearing in mind, we are not the United States. This is the right aircraft to purchase. And the sooner we can get these aircraft carriers out to sea operational with these fighters on them, the better for the country. I just wish it hadn't taken us this terrible process um, that's had to be corrected today. So, of course, the Secretary of State deserves some credit for repairing the dreadful shambles of the decisions of the Prime Minister. Philip Hammond talked to the Labour government's fiscal incontinence when dealing with defence. Do you accept any responsibility for the state of the MOD which the coalition government inherited? We all know that there are savings that have to be made and we also know that defence procurement problems have dogged all parties in power. I just wish the government would match its rhetoric with some action and reform Which, which I suppose procure. the government is saying that's what they're actually doing in well, making this U-turn. It's, it's a ludicrous assertion from the government. What they've decided on the Stuart-class submarines has added £200 million. What they've decided on the nuclear deterrent, delaying the decision until the next election just to suit the Lib Dem coalition, is costing tens of millions. And today's decision, um, well, the Secretary of State can't even say how much it's cost in this mistaken U-turn and shambles. It's up to £250 million. So let's hear no more of Conservative competence on defence spending. Today is the day that Conservative competence on defence spending died. Jim Murphy, stay with us. What is in a name? Or perhaps we should be asking what's in a cap badge? Well, former Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mike Jackson, had this to say on the matter. I'm not sure about loss of cap badges because, and we're, we're specifically here, I think, talking about the infantry, because the, the reorganisation that was carried out in 2004-2005 
put the whole of the infantry onto a large regiment basis. And I see no reason why those large regiments do not go on. Now, one, one or two of them may, I, I don't know, but may be looking at losing a battalion, but that's not the same thing as a loss of cat badge. Within the Royal Armoured Corps, uh, single regiment regiments, um, if, they, if they have to reduce, I can only see that there will be an amalgamation perhaps there. That was the former Chief of the General Staff General, Sir Mike Jackson. Well, this week, the Defence Secretary signalled the possible end of historic regiments like the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders and the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards under plans to reshape the army, cutting it by almost a fifth. In an interview with the Daily Telegraph, he warned entire infantry and armoured units could be wiped out. Well, Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy still with us. Uh, Jim Murphy, hard decisions in hard times then? Of course, there are some really tough choices, and politics is really about good choices, particularly at a time of austerity. But what the Defence Secretary did in his Telegraph interview is create enormous uncertainty when it was unnecessary. I asked, after the debate in the Commons to, earlier today about the aircraft carriers, I took the opportunity to speak to the Secretary of State about this, and I thought he was pretty complacent. Um, I thought it was a sense of, look, we'll get round to making a decision when we get round to making a decision. And people are left hanging, a sense of history is left in the balance, and a sense of just... And a kind of remarkable instability about it all, which is entirely self-generated by the Secretary of State. He really didn't need to say what he said and chose to say in the Telegraph. So how important do you think cap badges are and why is it so contentious in Scotland? I think it's contentious in different parts of the UK, understandably, but in particular in Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, there's a real sense of emotional and patriotic connection to being part of Her Majesty's Armed Forces that come back centuries Scots have served, as other folk from all across the UK have, but they've served with such distinction. And there's a just a, there's a, in Scotland, as you know, perhaps less in England generally about a sense of patriotism. There's an unsettled English patriotism. But yeah, there's, you, an, there's an avowed Scottish patriotism which then feeds into some of these issues, certainly when it comes you, to the Black Watch. Yeah, you, you say that, that, Jim Murphy, but, you know, this is, and it is supposed to inspire homegrown recruits, but it's not working in Scotland, is it? Look at the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, for instance. Of course there are systematic problems with recruitment, with some rec recruits, well, a disproportionate number of recruits coming from outside of Scotland and actually coming from outside the United Kingdom. My point is this, is if you're going to make these tough decisions... That, are, that affect people's lives and impact upon uh, history. It should be done carefully. It shouldn't be done in a cavalier, kind of casual interview in the Daily Telegraph. And I think the Secretary of State now has to act promptly to either confirm people's fears or reassure people. My conversation with him today, that he did neither. And the thing with this controversy at this moment is entirely unnecessary. It's pretty incompetent, actually. Chris Billy. I don't know. I think, I think Jim Murphy's absolutely right. It shouldn't be done in a casual um, thing in the Daily Telegraph. Mind you, it was done in a casual thing in The Scotsman, as, he, uh, as, as you would know, Mr Murphy, in about two weeks ago. I was up, um, I was in, uh, in Hoyk uh, recently, where my family come from, and they were all, my family traditionally, in the Black Watch. And they were talking about this because it was in the paper, and they were saying, well, hang on, uh, a lot of the Black Watch have to recruit in Fiji, for example, mm -hmm. and they weren't as desperate 
and as sad about the whole thing as ever. They say, okay, let's be three Scots, five Scots, and four Scots. Uh, let us let us let us emerge in that way. Let us keep the the cap badges within sort of companies or even sort of reduced companies. I think we've gone a bit far further on from when um, Colin Mitchell was trying to save the Argyles. There isn't that national interest in saving any parts of the services, I'm afraid. And I think that, you know, when we talk about anything in defence now, it's nothing to what people might be talking about in 2014, 2015, 2016. We're out of Afghanistan. People are going to say, OK, why are we still spending that sort of money? So I don't think there is a national interest in preserving the cat badges as once there was. Jim, Jim Murphy, I mean, the rifles have made the transition from cat badges and made a success of it, haven't they? There are, there are, all, there are all examples of where the, these amalgamations and changes have been handled pretty carefully and sensitively. My sense is this this has started pretty badly. And I, I think what we've just had an awful lot of very fair points, partly as a product of the armed forces being smaller. Fewer families have a direct experience of someone in their family, a loved one serving in the armed forces. Therefore, um, that initial cascading of emotion um, is less than perhaps it would have been in the past. But I do sense that unless the government handle this better than they've done so far, there, I think there will be the kind of latent sense of concern, I think, will come alive again. So, and, so you'll, how, and you'll see a, a real outpouring of concern. So how would you reshape the army to make the necessary cuts to personnel? Like having accused the Secretary of State of casually announcing, or half announcing his intention in a Telegraph interview, it'd be pretty cheeky for me to then use this interview um, to then do the same. What we are doing at the moment... Does that mean the, you don't know? That means that we're going through a process at the moment and it would be silly to, to second-guess it. But what we're doing is we're doing what the government should have done, which is having a, a debate and a discussion about what is Britain's future role in the world? What level of armed forces would, we, should we require to achieve that purpose in the world? And how much would it cost and can we afford it? Those are the things that the government chose not to do it. And at one level, I don't blame the government because after they were elected, they wanted to do a very quick defence review. But they're now repenting at their leisure about the pace in which they took those decisions, unfortunately. Uh, Jim, when you've uh, been through your research and got the answers to those questions, will you come back on SITREP and talk them through with us? Be bad manners not to. Jim Murphy, thanks for your time today. Thank you. SITREP with Kate the new memorial to Bomber Command is nearing completion, but why has it taken so long? This is BFBS SITREP. A change of leadership in France could mean French troops return from Afghanistan sooner than planned. During his election campaign, French President-elect François Hollande pledged to start bringing 3,300 French soldiers home this year, ending France's combat role two years earlier than NATO's plan. However, NATO leaders say they expect France to remain part of the military effort in the country. Hugh Schofield is the BBC's correspondent in Paris. Thanks for your time today, Hugh. Um, Not at all. How important to François Hollande's campaign was this pledge to bring the troops home early? Well, it, it was there written in black and white on his manifesto and he repeated it many times during the campaign, most notably in the debate which he had with uh, Nicolas Sarkozy just uh, four days before, before the election. I mean, he, he spelled it out in, in terms which I think would make it very difficult for him to row back. That's not to say there won't be some kind of 
wiggle room and I dare say um, you know he, he could he could explain to the electorate um, afterwards that you know the, the, the exact timing was flexible or whatever but I mean I, I don't think he could he could simply drop it I mean he, he said it quite, quite so clearly that it, it is definitely part of what he plans to do and he will when he goes to uh, the NATO meeting next week or at the end of next week I mean that, that's going to be his message no question about it and what is the public feeling in France about Afghanistan? Well, I mean, uh, you know, people people are obviously not particularly happy about it, and I think his argument that the the mission had changed and that from oh, it appears we have actually lost Hugh Schofield. Uh, apologies for that, um, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Um, what do you think um, the pressure will now be on Francois Hollande to perhaps not fulfil this pledge when he goes to Washington? He's going to announce in Washington, is it the 21st of, uh, 21st of May, he's announcing in Washington that France's policy is going to be to support rejuvenation, etc., of Afghanistan. But their numbers will have to come down. Now, the French have, what, at the moment about 3,000, 3,400, doing a good job, an important job. It's the fourth or fifth biggest contribution to ISAF, so we shouldn't sort of play it down. But physically, how to get out is actually quite important. You can't just sort of up sticks. They did in March, they pulled out a, a, pulled out a battalion of guys after the killing of uh, some French soldiers there. They pulled them out. That was easy because that comes out as a unit. But also, if they're in a training role, they've got to be able to hand over to the Afghan army especially a pretty well-trained group. And there's another thing that so now So do you he's think it's, it's not possible to actually fulfil this pledge, really, you can, practically? You, you can fulfil it, but not as quickly as you think. I think the most important thing is going to be, sitting there in the Elysee Palace, the advisers will be coming up to him. And they will say, Mr. President, look at it this way. If you pull out now, unilaterally, before you said you would, leaving people untrained, in about two years' time, our arms salesmen need to get back into Afghanistan to sell the Afghan army the equipment that you're training them in future ideas to use. Our salesmen are not going to be well received if we've actually pulled out ahead of the game. And I think that may reduce the numbers he pulls out or at the speed he pulls them out. So actually, practically, what he ends up doing may be slightly different. But in terms of the attitude, do you think it is a taster of the future attitude by the French towards their defence policy internationally? Might they be less um, inclined to get involved in, in a Libya campaign like they did? Uh, I don't think they will lead on the Libyan campaign. You see, uh, Mr Sarkozy led on that. I'm not sure... I suppose he had his election in mind, perhaps, well, you could he, say cynically. Uh, he did, but also the, he had just signed an agreement with the British, I think, mean, about four weeks beforehand, on cooperation. And cooperation, as far as Mr Sarkozy has always been concerned, means France first and the British second, exactly as Mr Cameron would have put it himself. But the important thing is, France is still in NATO, is still in the military side of NATO as well as the political side of NATO, and it also realises how clearly this tied up with the European Union. And so I think that what you say, obviously, in a, in, a, in a campaign to get elected, you may not necessarily put into practice. It appears we have re-established contact you with uh, Paris Hugh Schofield. <laughs> Welcome back, BBC's correspondent there. Um, tell us a little bit more about the future investment in defence, something France has been quite good at under President Sarkozy. Yes, I mean, you know, one of Sarkozy's hallmarks was uh, this sort of shift back towards America, towards NATO, reintegrating and so on. And of course, I mean, it, I think Christopher Lee's probably been saying the... Um, the socialists were never behind any of that and there's no way that they would have taken the steps that Nicolas Sarkozy 
took uh, and they opposed them when he did take them. That said, you know, I mean, that's just the rule of politics um, and, and kind of pra pragmatism. And, and I think Francois Hollande is pragmatic. I mean, he's not going to un undo any of that. I, I think, you know, what Sarkozy has done is establish a new fait accompli, a new reality. And um, I don't think there's going to be any particular change whether or not france will have the same kind of activism and sort of willingness to get involved that we saw with nicolas sarkozy particularly in libya but also of course in in uh, afghanistan where he, he boosted numbers um nicolas sarkozy um is, is another question and arguably they won't but I, I, there won't be a kind of i don't think there'll be a radical shift even though on the left there will be there are many people in the socialist party who are opposed to uh, the, what sarkozy did i don't see francois Hollande um, changing tack in a dramatic way has the french public at all formed any opinion about francois Hollande so far far in terms of his defence ideas? No, I don't, I don't think they have really. I mean, all they've taken on board is, is this promise which he's, you know, repeated over and again and, and, and you know, was largely, I think, directed at the, at the left, his left, which throughout the campaign he had to keep very much um, on board and, ha you know, had to fend off the, the risk of attacks from the left. So this was taken in that, in that context. And, of course, you've got to remember that it was also taken in the context of Nicolas Sarkozy himself having said that he was bringing forward the return from the end of 2014 to the end of 2013. That was after the, the big suicide bombing uh, and, and killing of... Um, no, it wasn't a suicide bombing, I'm sorry. It was a shooting of, of, of many French soldiers by that maverick um, uh, uh, Afghan soldier in January. And that, that caused Sarkozy, um, arguably for electoral reasons as well, to announce that he was bringing forward the return date to the end of 2013. And, 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 and so Wallon just kind of built on that and said, well, I'm saying 2012. So, you know, it, it wasn't completely out of the blue that he said that. In terms of Britain and France, relationship-wise on defence, has much is much going to change as a result of this new president? Do you think, or it will, will it be more or less business as usual? It's very early, and I, I we don't even know who his, his defence secretary is going to be. We haven't really heard him say very much about defence at all. I can't imagine that there'll be any great change because I think the consistent uh, desire of all French leaders will be to boost French presence and maintain its force and, and, and impact in the world at a time when everything argues that it should diminish. That requires, I think, the same logic, which means that, you know, France and, and Britain pull together. I mean, I think it's just, it's just force majeure. I don't think there's any other way. Chris Lee. Who's building Britain's aircraft carriers? The French and the British. Who is building the new air, uh, air, aircraft? The Americans, but with large parts of French and British con uh, contributions. Who is actually sort of, who has built in the past, uh, sort of the typhoon, for example, French on board. Helicopters, French on board. People, uh, the, these are the real defence uh, issues. Not whether we go and take on Libya, Syria or whatever. It's where the dollars and the euros come for in defence spending. All right, Christopher, thank you. Uh, Hugh Schofield in Paris, thank you for your time thank today. Thank you. A memorial to the sacrifice and bravery of more than 50,000 airmen who died in the Second World War is nearing completion in London's Green Park. The men of Bomber Command have long complained of a lack of proper recognition for their role. Uh, Christopher, why has it taken so long for Bomber Command to be commemorated? It's a puzzle. It is a complete puzzle. Uh, excepting for one thing, uh, where do you stop? The Bomber Command, Pathfinder Command, Coastal Command, um, all these things take time, but they always have. 
if you take Nelson, for example, Battle of Trafalgar, Nelson killed, 1805, yeah? And you think, right, Nelson's column, Trafalgar Square, great stuff. That didn't happen until nearly 50 years later. Mm. And then it wasn't the government that put it up, it was public subscription. We've and that took so long because... Nobody was interested. We've <laughs> always done it that way. Mm. And also, we tend to honour not things like you know, people like commands, etc. We honour the individuals. Now, for example, uh, uh, Air Chief Marshal Park, they've just put a statue up after the Second World War, uh, Air Chief Marshal Park in Waterloo Place, down from the Duke of York steps uh, in, 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 in central London. If you look around, let us take London, 70% of statues in London... I think 68% of statues in London are to military people. But, but on Bomber Command... I but they're mean, individuals, it, it, what I'm saying, rather than the commands. It, but in, ter- in terms of the Bomber Command Memorial, it, it, was very, it, is, it has been very controversial. Just for those people who, who don't know, why has it been such a source of distaste to have a memorial for some people? Well, it goes right back to the, the original idea, which came up in the 60s. And people got upset. They said, well, you know, Bomber Harris, it, uh, what about Dresden? Should we have done Dresden, etc.? And so these, uh, it was also public awareness. The average, the average kid who's doing, say, GCSEs or even A-levels on the Second World War, they know more about the Luftwaffe than they do about Bomber Command. And I think that sounds, it gives you this whole sort of British attitude. Once we've got a victory, we are lousy once we've got a victory. We always start condemning the victory, and it shouldn't have happened that way, and the people involved in it shouldn't. I'm mean, Montgomery is about the only person that survived as a hero from the Second World War, as far as the British are concerned. It was very difficult, wasn't it, for people to separate? And by the way, he only got his statue, I think, about sort of 15 years ago. <laughs> but has anything changed in the public attitude towards this kind of commemoration of, of war deeds? No, it hasn't. Um, and I think it's, 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 it's almost an indifference. Uh, well, after the Falklands War, which we're all talking about sort of 30 years on, it was interesting when there was the so-called Victory Parade uh, throughout the city of London, etc. There was a big campaign led by the Archbishop of Canterbury then, uh, uh, Robert Runcie, that it shouldn't be a Victory Parade. And the British actually, in, in their, uh, it, it, after their wars don't really much want to talk about it. Only historians want to talk about it because they're trying to flog books. Christopher, you've got 20 seconds to talk about what we should look out for next week. Uh, We should look out for next week. There's a meeting at NATO. They're going to be talking about cyber stuff again. And I think cyber is the warfare that we tend to ignore at our peril, especially with the Olympics coming up. All right, Christopher, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter, tweeters at BFBS SITREP, or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.